Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for May 16th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to talk about what we've been up to or what Ben's been up to. And in the latest film and TV news, we will discuss, uh, do we really need this sequel spinoff or additional season of this thing we once liked? I think that's the the, 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 um, the title of today's episode. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, uh, before we get into things, uh, Ben, yesterday we talked about Deadpool 2. You were not here. I, I said that uh, I sat next to you, and as your wife said, you were fuming the entire screening. Uh, <laughs> I thought since we have you on um, and people uh, care about what you think, uh, what, what did you think of Deadpool 2? Do people care about what I think, Peter? I don't know about that. But uh, I was not a fan of this movie. I was, like you said, I was sitting right next to you. And I don't know if it was our theater or what, but it seemed like almost none of the jokes in this movie landed for me. And I had a long conversation with my wife on the the drive home, the long drive across town home from the the far-flung screening that we went to in uh, Century City. And I think... For me, it all boils down to the humor in these movies, and I just don't connect with it on any level. And I think there's a huge disconnect between what the movie thinks is a joke and what is actually a joke. Because most of the things that that the characters deliver, most of the lines that they deliver as jokes, I don't think qualify. (laughs) I think they just deliver them as if they're saying a joke or telling a joke, but it's just like more of a reference. It's not in and of itself a funny thing it's just like hey this thing exists and we're referencing that and that's good enough for some people but i i just i I think that's that's when your entire movie is built on that it's really tough to um to get through you know to get past that do do you uh disagree no i i I don't um we also had the weird uh chris i'm not sure if you've ever had this um occurrence of you're in a movie uh, screening and people like I, I feel like during the first 20 minutes there was a lot of laughter in our screening and then you know the movie starts to get serious for a little bit 
and then the jokes kind of like kick back in and the rest of the, the movie was just like really no response from our audience. It, like just everything was feeling like it just felt like like the energy has been it had been sucked out of our, our screening room. I'm not sure if that was just, you know, being in that uh, screening room full of uh, critics, although it seemed like it wasn't just critics. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Yeah. And, and one more thing I'll say about Deadpool 2, just to wrap this up and not belabor the point too much. But um, I thought that the movie tried to uh, get you to invest emotionally in what was going on with these characters. And to me, that seems like the wrong move for a Deadpool movie, because the entire conceit of this character is that he doesn't take anything seriously. He's always quipping. He's always being sarcastic. So when the movie does these rapid tonal shifts from normal Deadpool stuff to deadly serious emotional, you know, highly emotional things that, you know, people are crying and it's like a a huge deal. I just couldn't, I couldn't, I did not find myself um, along for the ride with those characters on an emotional level, because I always feel at arm's length from these movies. Like, why would I want to invest in what these people are doing when there's always the danger and high probability, really, of them immediately pulling out the rug by, you know, quipping about the thing that they're dealing with. So I don't know. I, I just I thought it was a strange choice for this movie to try to be as emotional as it was. And that's something I wasn't expecting going in. So um, I guess if you are fine with this and you sort of set your expectations really low, then maybe you'll have fun with it. But I just, it was not for me. Yeah. And I think there's a discussion at a later time to be had with uh, some of the choices that were made in the very end of the film, maybe even in the end credits and uh, how that impacts the uh, emotional arc of this film and the impact. Um, But we'll have that at a later time um, when uh, people have seen this movie and uh, people are interested in hearing what we have to say about that. Let's, uh, let's jump into the news and let's uh, get to a story that uh, we didn't talk about yesterday because we were talking all about TV, but it came out uh, the the night before it was announced fast and furious nine has hired a new writer for the franchise for the first time since 2006. Ben, you are a big fan of this franchise. Uh, what is going on here? Yeah, so Chris Morgan has been the writer-producer of the Fast and Furious franchise ever since Tokyo Drift came out in 2006. And he has written the five movies that came out after that and has really been uh, part of the guiding creative force, the driving creative force almost uh, for this this whole franchise. Um, he and Justin Lin sort of teamed to bring this the Fast and Furious franchise back from extinction and uh, turned it into this over-the-top action franchise that we know of it today. And now, The Hollywood Reporter says that Dan Casey has been tapped to write Fast and Furious 9. So Chris Morgan, the writer-producer I just mentioned, he is writing the Hobbs and Shaw spinoff that stars Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham. So he's busy doing that, and Universal has already given Fast uh, Fast 9, whatever you want to call it. We don't know the official title of that movie yet, but they've already given Fast 9 a release date. So that one comes out in 2020. So I guess in order to make sure that both the spinoff and this new movie, Fast 9, are able to sort of hit those targeted dates, uh, they decided to hire Dan Casey. And he is an up-and-coming screenwriter. He wrote a sci-fi thriller called Kin that has uh, James Franco attached. That's going to be coming up soon. He actually did some rewrite work on uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, Dan Trachtenberg's um, sequel from a couple years ago. 
And uh, he has a lot of projects sort of percolating in the works. He's supposed to be working on a, a remake or a sequel to The Craft and um, an adaptation of Killer Be Killed, which is a comic book from Ed Brubaker. So he is one of those big, uh, you know, hot up and coming guys. And um, and yeah, he's been tapped to write Fast and Furious 9. I, I haven't really seen any of the work that he's done yet because it, uh, most of it, except for 10 Cloverfield Lane. But uh, I think most of it is sort of... Um, you know, he's he's one of those guys who has a lot of heat right now, as they say, in in the biz. And uh, he's just, you know, he's writing a lot of spec scripts and, and projects that are sort of percolating but haven't actually come to production yet. Now, how do you think Vin Diesel feels about, like, kind of the architect of the Fast and the Furious franchise being pulled away? Uh, he's not able to write Fast 9 and he's 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 writing The Rock's spinoff. Yeah, I know that. The, I'm sure he's probably not happy about that, especially because I know that um, I interviewed Chris Morgan when The Fate of the Furious came out uh, last year, and he was talking about how good of a relationship he has with Vin Diesel. And those two guys are really, um, you know, batting around script ideas all the time. So it's interesting that uh, that Morgan seemingly chose Hobbs and Shaw over Fast 9 because they, they easily could have gotten somebody else to write that movie. And it arguably would have made more sense for Universal to hire somebody else to write that spinoff film because Morgan has been the architect of this of the the through line, you know, going all the way through these the, the saga movies, if you will. So and especially with Justin Lin coming back to direct Fast 9, it would seem like he would want to reunite with that, you know, get that core team back together. But now uh, they're introducing a new voice into the mix. So it'll be interesting to see how the movie feels different um, moving forward. Yeah. Um, Let's move on to Netflix's Daredevil season three. Uh, There are rumors that Bullseye might be involved in this newest season. And uh, the first set photos show uh, Matt Murdock returning to the black suit. Chris, what do we know? Uh, yeah, so the Defenders, the uh, the big Marvel crossover on Netflix, that ended with Daredevil, uh, aka Matt Murdock, being presumed dead after this, this building exploded. But then it showed that he was actually still alive and being nursed back to health. So uh, we don't know the full story about what the new season is going to be about, but we can you know safely assume that it's going to be about Matt Murdock being you know coming back to being uh, Daredevil again. But new set photos have shown that he's wearing the the sort of cheap-looking black suit he wore in the first season again. Um, I'm not sure <laughs> what the reasoning will be for this in, in the show, but uh, I guess it's just all about him getting back on his feet. And uh, honestly, this sounds like a step backwards because the first season – the, like there was a, literally an arc in the first season to him building to getting his suit. The, the the last episode was him in the costume, and they made a big deal about it. But I guess they're they're going back to the drawing board here. And uh, also, like you said, um, there's a rumor going around now that an actor named Wilson Bethel, who we know has been cast in the show, uh, is going to be playing Bullseye. Um, we don't have a confirmation on that. That's a rumor. Uh, previously, he was announced as playing an, an FBI agent, which is not what Bullseye is in the comics. But uh, as everyone knows, these shows do tend to change things. So maybe they're making Bullseye an FBI agent for the show for some reason. Now, uh, you know, I, I know some fans were kind of upset that uh, of, about the red suit. Uh, maybe that it, it like just doesn't make sense 
for uh, a vigilante to be roaming around New York City in Hell's Kitchen in kind of uh, bright attire if you want to like stick in with the shadows. I mean, you know, the the original black suit makes more sense uh, theoretically, but the comic books have him in a red suit. Um, I wanted to hear what you, what you thought about this. Like, do, do you do you have any problem with the red suit? I really don't. I, I feel like you know these shows uh they should just embrace you know that that silliness like yeah i guess it does make sense for you know a vigilante sticking in the shadows to wear black but you know he's also a blind superhero so i don't really think they have to worry too much about uh realism they should just go for it they should just you know give him that red suit that's you know again i know he he had a black suit in the comics he also had a yellow suit but the red suit is the tradition and it also ties into his you know whole you know thing where he's he's the devil of hell's kitchen which uh the devil tends to be red in in traditional depictions so i honestly don't have a problem with it but uh uh you know that's me let's move on from one superhero in a black suit to another let's talk about black panther how about that for a transition? Um, <laughs> uh, when, when Black Panther was coming out, we heard that Donald Glover uh, was brought in to help with rewrites to kind of like help with the comedy of the film. I joked on this very podcast that I I, I could feel some of his comic energy in a bunch of uh, Shuri's lines. And it turns out I may have been right. Ben, tell us about it. Yes, so Donald Glover, the writer, director, producer, rapper, multi-hyphenate, and his brother Stephen, who works with him on uh, the FX series Atlanta, were helped, uh, brought in to help uh, punch up some of the jokes on Black Panther. And Ryan Coogler, the writer uh, or co-writer and director of that movie, uh, recently said in the Blu-ray commentary, which the movie just came out on Blu-ray earlier this week, so the story is sort of making the rounds, he revealed one of the moments that Donald Glover helped um, suggest one of these comedic moments. And it, it's the part in the movie, if you guys recall, when T'Challa recur- returns to Wakanda after the events of Civil War. He participates in this coronation ceremony that's on the, the waterfall's edge there. And Zuri, Forrest Whitaker's character, asks if anyone in the crowd wishes to challenge the king for the throne. And Shuri raises her hand and everybody gasps but she's just sort of messing around and she says this corset is really uncomfortable. So could we all just wrap it up and go home? And it turns (laughs) out that was a, that was a joke that uh, Glover suggested. Um, That is great. Uh, It's, it's actually very unusual to find out this kind of information because usually in this part of uh, the Hollywood creative process, uh, people involved uh, don't want to kind of like credit one person with, you know, a line or something. I, I remember talking to, um, Jonathan Nolan uh, when Interstellar came out and I was trying to grill him about like you know what what did Spielberg bring to that film before you know his brother came on to direct it and he was unwilling to like kind of budge and talk about that um, but uh, I don't know I mean these, these guys these uh these cats pun intended uh, <laughs> uh, are, seem to be much uh, more willing to talk about that stuff. Uh, but let's move on to um, Arrested Development Season 5. Netflix has announced that they're going to split that season into two parts. Chris, why? Uh, yeah, so uh, everyone was sort of surprised when it was announced earlier this month that the, the new season of Arrested Development was arriving this month uh, before the month would end on May 29th. But 
uh, don't get too excited because it's being split into two parts. The first eight episodes will be dropped on a Netflix on May 29th, and then the remaining eight won't arrive till later in the year. We don't have a date yet. Uh, and the reason behind this is really just Emmy consideration. Um, I'm guessing uh, Netflix didn't have all 16 episodes done yet, but they really wanted to get in under the wire for the Emmys because uh, Emmy, the Emmy consideration deadline for this year ends May 31st. So in order to make that deadline, they're, they're putting those first eight episodes out. They're also doing this with the new season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, too. So I guess that's just part of their plan where they're in order to get that Emmy deadline, they're they're splitting things up. This is interesting because this just goes to show how important, you know, award consideration is for even like someone like Netflix who, you know, uh, notoriously won't uh, release their films in theaters ahead of time. Uh, and that has prevented them from, you know, showing at film festivals like Cannes um, because of, uh, you know, th- that that unwillingness uh and they've always said that it's always comes down to the consumer their subscribers you know their subscribers are going to get get it first um but it it seems like this kind of move to me seems like it's more in in a move to you know to win some you know potentially award nominations uh and hoping that you know if they get nominated that will bring more subscribers to the platform uh what do you guys think about this? Like, do you, do you do you like half seasons? Like, is it more manage, manageable to kind of uh, digest these seasons in that way? I mean, I think for something like this, that's you know, uh, Peter. I think you were talking on the podcast yesterday about uh, shows that are you know twenty four episodes long or something. And in your older age, as you get older, you don't <laughs> like sort of uh, you know devoting the time to watching something like that and. For a show like this, where it's only, you know, 15, 16 episodes to split that in half just seems, uh, yeah, unnecessary or yes, to to make a decision um, with like a, a business motive in mind in terms of like, yes, uh, procuring awards and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, from a creative standpoint or, or an audience person who's going in and trying to watch a show in I don't have a problem watching 13 episodes in a row as long as the the story uh, is is warranted you know it warrants that length so Chris what do you think uh yeah I'm of the mind that all Netflix shows are, are way too long especially their Marvel shows which should really be like six episodes long but at the same time I feel like you know Netflix has made you know streaming everything at once their brand like that's what netflix is known for so uh to just you know just randomly decide to not do that every now and then for award consideration seems a little weird especially because i don't know i feel like this show like arrested development it would benefit from from binging you know maybe some other shows wouldn't but i feel like this show would so it, it does kind of uh, even though I, I've kind of fallen out of love with Arrested Development, especially after last season, um, it does bum me out a little that we're not getting the whole thing at once. I just wonder, you know, TV is changing. We've talked about that in the past on this podcast, and Netflix is doing things differently, but they still hold on to some interesting, you know, parts of uh, how TV shows were released back on, you know, the the old network days, I guess. Um, and one thing I'm wondering is, like, why, why, why even call it a half season? Why not release this as Arrested Development season five and be like, you know, we're making 
seven episode seasons now. Arrested Development season five is hitting now, and season six is going to hit, you know, uh, later this later this year. I mean, like, I don't see any reason not to market it as two releases at that point. I think it's probably, and I haven't seen any of these new episodes yet, but I think it's probably because there's like a thematic through line, you know, like a, a complete narrative within yeah. this one story. So I, I'm guessing this was a decision that was made after production ended, um, or at the very least after after shooting ended. They may be still editing even now, but um, but yeah. I just wonder if going forward we're going to see Netflix divide their programming up more like um, – you know, people aren't coming back week to week to see Stranger Things. They watch it in one weekend, uh, and then they have to wait, what, like a year and a half to get another season of it. Um, I, I wonder if we're going to see shows that, you know, could potentially get together, film two seasons of, you know, eight or nine episodes each together, and then release those, like, you know, six months apart. That way, uh, you know, the audience doesn't have to wait so long in between these mm-hmm. seasons. Uh, I think that could be that could be an interesting direction for Netflix to take. And obviously, this is just all uh, stupid speculation on my part. But <laughs> but uh, but maybe someone from Netflix is listening and will will steal this idea. Um, speaking of Netflix, uh, they uh, made a season. Uh, they made a, a show called Thirteen Reasons Why, um, which uh, was based on a book. A uh, young adult book. It, it was um, about someone who had committed suicide and left thirteen tapes uh, for someone to find and to to learn the reasons of why uh, they had committed suicide. Uh, the, the book ends, and that's the end of the book. But the Netflix series decided to do a second season because it was so popular. The second season is coming out uh, this week, and the first reviews have hit the web. Ben, was it worth it? Uh, Did they need to make a second season of this show? It seems like the prevailing critical sentiment right now is there was no reason for 13 Reasons Why to come back for season two. Um, I rounded up a bunch of uh, excerpts from different reviews and stuff, and they're all pretty long, so I don't want to bore the the listeners by reading them aloud here. But um, in general, the tone of these reviews is more like, why are you doing this? Why there's no reason, you know, it's basically just blaming the Netflix algorithm for assessing the the first season's popularity and then essentially forcing the hand of the creatives of the show to come back because it was so popular and they're not just going to leave that uh, cultural currency sitting on the table, you know, for a second season. So they decided to bring it back. Anyway, the story seems not quite as um, <laughs> as straightforward as it was the first time around, because like you mentioned, they're now beyond the events of the, the book on which this was based. Um, I guess the, the one good thing is that uh, a lot of people tend to point to the performances and say that the actors do pretty well with what they're given, especially Dylan Minnette, who plays uh, the protagonist of the show, Clay Jensen. Uh, somebody at Variety had a lot of really, really good things to say about him. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there are some, your mileage may vary in terms of how you react to the show. And it's very controversial and all that kind of stuff that you mentioned before. But, um, you know, it's depictions of like rape and suicide and very yeah. uh, hot button issues. Um, but it seems like the second season is not as uh, as good as the first overall. That is disappointing. It, it should be noted that uh, I'm not sure it was Netflix that 
force them into doing a second season because the first season, uh, not to give a- any spoilers away, but kind of is left uh, with a couple hanging threads and not not so much a cliffhanger, but like uh, threads that are not like, oh, that's a fun thread to hang at the end of the series. But threads that like uh, we were definitely setting this up for a second season. Um, it just didn't seem like they knew where they were going with those threads. And and also, why why didn't they call the second season fourteen reasons why? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's move on to a Batman prequel show that has been announced, uh, starring or it's going to be focusing on a young, sexy Alfred. Uh, Chris, do do we need this show? absolutely who hasn't been sitting around waiting for a sexy young alfred show i i uh i remember that's just that was always a conversation everywhere i went through my whole life i I, I mean i i I, when i was a kid i was always pitching like you know it'd be cool to have a show about gotham and its villains but as when batman was a kid before he was batman that would be so great and then uh and then my second pitch was, you know, the Alfred show, the young Alfred yes, show. Yes, that, every, everyone's been waiting for the Alfred show, and now we're getting it. It's called Pennyworth, and it's, god damn it, even the, even the title. Like, I know that's his name, but who, I can't, I can't even get through this without laughing. All right, so. Uh, what, what is the pitch here? Uh, like, what, what is like, uh, you know, right, say so, you, were, you were going into the executive uh, office right now to pitch the show. What is it? Do you want the real pitch or my pitch for the Alfred? The, the, real, the real pitch is the show follows Alfred when he's young in the 60s, and he's a uh, former British SAS soldier who forms a security company that goes to work for Bruce Wayne's father, Thomas Wayne, uh, in London. So that that's the plot. And, uh, you know, as so silly as the they're fan- like, we, we can do James Bond with uh... – a DC property, basically. Right. It's, you know, what if James Bond uh, grew up to become a butler? That's that's the premise here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, this does have some, ref, you know, it has a history in the comics. There is a history in the comics of Alfred being, like, you know, working for MI5 and all that stuff when he was younger. But uh, I, I don't know who this is for. You know, I, I'm not a fan of Gotham, but at, at least I acknowledge that show, Gotham, had batman's rose gallery not all of them but a good amount of them to draw people in i can't imagine this show is going to have that because it's set in the 60s it's set in london so it's literally just going to be like a spy show with with the batman brand and good luck good luck to everyone involved oh so where are people going to be able to watch this show this will be on epics which is a a premium cable network which i don't I don't even know if anyone watches it, but uh, if only, you do, the only thing I know about Epics is they once like aired like a Kevin Smith original stand-up special, but I didn't know that they were even they even had original programming. Apparently so, and they have quality shows like The Alfred Show. So be on the lookout <laughs> for this. It'll arrive sometime in 2019. Do you know who is responsible for this? Like, wh- who the showrunner is going to be? Uh, well, it's actually two people from uh, Gotham. It's uh, Bruno Heller and Danny Cannon, who are both producers on Gotham. Um, uh, it's it's not clear if this is going to tie directly into Gotham. I mean, the, Alfred is on Gotham, and he's a little younger there. But Gotham is sort of set 
I don't even, it, it feels like it's set contemporary time. So it, for this show to be definitely set in the 60s, it seems unlikely they're going to have the same actor uh, play Alfred. Uh, Sean, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, but <laughs> the actor on Gotham is probably not going to be playing Alfred on this show because it's set even earlier. Apparently, Epics had some original programming. Like they have a show called Graves, which is a political satire about a former American president seeking to repair the damage he caused caused by his administration. Sounds great. Sounds like a really good show. Yeah, and <laughs> and uh, uh, Berlin Station, which is about a CIA agent's quest to uncover an information leak on the agency's Berlin office. I have heard good things about that, but that's also on Netflix right now. So I guess it's on both. I mean, it's on Netflix original, but it's streaming on Netflix. So I don't know. Maybe Epix does have some good shows. And, Who knows? and they're also making a Get Shorty show. So Oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> okay, let's move on to, um, to you know, we, we've we been talking on the podcast about the, the Me Too movement. And uh, obviously, when all of the, that was happening. One of the casualties uh, was John Lasseter, the head of Pixar and Disney. He stepped down after uh, some allegations that were not made public, but uh, he wrote a letter that was public uh, stepping down. Uh, and he, he was going to take a, a six-month sabbatical, uh, and now we have word that he might be returning to Disney. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so Lasseter's six-month sabbatical is supposed to come to an end on May 21st, which is next week. And now the Wall Street Journal is reporting that executives at the Walt Disney Company have actually discussed letting Lasseter come back as uh, as that uh, sabbatical comes to an end. But if he if they do bring him back, he would be in more of a creative position, but they would strip away his executive privileges. So it, it sounds like he won't have any of the managerial duties. He won't be like in charge of anyone. He's not going to be able to hire or fire anyone. And he's going to be essentially just put, you know, used his, his creative uh, skills at, at, you know, and, and be like a sounding board for these different productions. And he was like actively involved in almost every, project that went through Pixar's doors beforehand and it sounds like they still value his creative skills but they just don't want to put him in a position where he could uh, theoretically abuse any of his power so uh, man this is a tough one because uh, there's you know nobody specifically came forward and um, and said that I don't, I don't know, Peter. You're gonna have to take this. Yeah, <laughs> there, um, there was reports from I think LA Times and Hollywood Reporter reporting on this subject, and there was some kind of like alleged stuff in those reports, but nothing was you know quoted to actual people. Uh, nothing, you know, nobody came out uh, publicly. Uh, you know, I, I've noted on this podcast that if I was a female animator who wanted to animate feature films in the United States, that uh, I would be very afraid to uh, to come public uh, about, you know, someone like John Lester and, uh, you know, in a, making a company like Disney that kind of runs basically animation in North America uh, look bad uh, and uh 
And I think that's proven to be true too. If yeah. this if this report is legitimate and Disney does bring him back, I think that those fears would be even more founded, right? Because he's still going to be there theoretically. And again, there this is still it, we a little to, bit... we have to be fair. We like nobody it, this isn't like, you know, a Weinstein situation or a Bill Cosby situation where people have gone on record and come out against Laster. No one has. Uh but it seems to be serious enough that uh, Lasseter has stepped down or was asked to step down by Disney and write that public apology. Um, so there definitely seems to be something there, right? Um, yeah, like, it, it, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Like, it, if you were someone that was made to feel uncomfortable by Lasseter's hugs or other physical contact contact I think that's how he word, worded it in his uh, apology um what would this say to you as Disney bringing him back as a a head creative force in the company yeah it's not a great look Chris what do you think about this uh I think it says that if you're someone in power you can get away with anything and that's a terrible message and that's where we are right now as a society again like we said, uh, there's no no one came forward with specific allegations or whatever you want to call them. But the fact that Disney or Pixar will bring him back in a limited capacity indicates they are punishing him for something, something we don't actually know about. Otherwise, if there was nothing there, if nothing actually happened, wouldn't they just reinstate him to literally his old uh, job and say, never mind, we made a mistake? The fact that they are considering bringing him back in some sort of different capacity says to me that something actually happened. And if something actually happened, he shouldn't get his job back. Like, look, you want to call John Lasseter a genius. I'll agree with you on that level on an artistic level. Yes, he is a a genius artistically, but that really shouldn't outweigh someone's actions. And it does again and again. And I, I don't know if it ever if we'll ever get around that, I, I wish we would, but uh, it's like we're, we're hardwired to forgive people things if they produce art we like. And I, I wish that weren't a case. I don't have an answer. I, I wish I did, but that just seems to be where we are. And it seems especially egregious at a place like Pixar, which I think like Brenda Chapman, who was originally going to be the director of Brave before she got booted off that movie. She has talked a lot about how women at that particular company are not particularly well treated. You know, it's, it's there aren't enough women executives there for women to feel uh, like their voices are being heard. And so even I mean, if you set all this stuff aside, right, as much as possible, there are still people at Pixar who could easily fill this role, maybe not not uh, to the exact extreme that Lasseter was this creative genius, but you've still got people like Brad Bird and Pete Doctor and like tons of people that we don't even know their names who are doing brilliant work all the time at Pixar. I think the company would be fine if they didn't bring him back. It's not like Lasseter is the end all be all and the entire company will crumble without him. I don't know. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I keep on thinking back, like, you know, we don't know anything about what actually happened. But the one thing that, like, haunts me is, I think in Deadline's report, there was, like, this quote, which uh, it's very ominous. It, it's uh, talking about this event the last year, uh uh, attended with uh, the young women who uh, voiced the... Uh, the Tinkerbell fairies uh, animated like movies. 
And uh, Disney sent a chaperone, an escort, with Lasseter because why? We don't know. And uh, the quote is at the party, quote, he was inappropriate with the fairies. <laughs> and uh, that, like, to me, like, it, that's scary. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because, uh, Disney and Pixar are, you know, Disney is opening up Toy Story lands in Florida and, uh, I think Shanghai, uh, just opened up, uh, Laster, you know, would be the person to be there. He's not, uh, you know, they're making a Toy Story four, uh, it'll be weird if he showed up on the red carpet to that movie, even though he's responsible for that entire franchise. Uh, Lasseter's so much in the DNA of that company, and uh, it, it feels weird uh, to be like, yeah, let him be in on the creative sessions because, uh, I mean, you even heard from a – who was the other uh, female comic writer that uh, – left Pixar. Uh Rashida Jones left the 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 toy the new Toy Story, I believe. Yeah, and I think she said that nothing happened to her, but uh she, she had this statement about uh kind of uh she felt that females in the company were kind of um you know, suppressed in in some way uh by by management creative, you know, when they make suggestions and stuff. Uh like it, it does seem like it is a problem within the the atmosphere and uh, of, of of that company and uh it, yeah yeah i mean it, ben you said it, it's not a good look for disney I, I i i think it just sends a bad signal to you know everybody involved in that company i and again to be clear we don't know that john lester did anything wrong well no he <laughs> he apologized so he definitely did yeah. something wrong we just aren't sure the extent to which he did wrong things yeah. i guess like yeah. the full extent it's a hard topic to t- to discuss because uh it's not like as cut and dry as i think some of the other uh, me too stuff is but uh right yeah there are definitely shades to all this stuff and we'll have to see you know whether disney actually pulls the trigger on this it's very possible that they floated this information out there to see what the response would be um, and hopefully they're hearing us and, and other people like us loud and clear and they make the decision based on that if that's if that's actually part of their strategy here. Yeah. Um, let's move on to our final story. I said this is the episode about, uh, you know, sequel spinoffs and additional seasons of things that we, we once liked that we probably don't need. And we're going to end that with Zombieland 2, uh, which apparently might actually arrive in... 2019 chris do we need Zombieland 2 no we do not but it's probably going to happen anyway uh 2019 will be the the 10 year anniversary of the first zombie land and uh no Rhett way Reese... it's been 10 years yes it has time flies uh <laughs> um so Rhett reese and paul wernick who wrote the first film they also wrote uh deadpool 2 so they're out there doing the rounds to promote deadpool 2 and someone asked them uh, about, you know, what's going on with Zombieland 2? And they said uh, they danced around a little bit and they said they, they know stuff they can't actually tell us yet. But the hope is to have it ready for 2019 with the original cast coming back. Um, again, it doesn't sound like anything's 100% set in stone, but they also made it sound like 
there's definitely been some something going on behind the scenes right now trying to get it off the ground. So I guess we'll see. I mean, they've been talking about a zombie land two pretty much ever since the, the first film came out. Um, and there was also a, a zombie land pilot that was shot for Amazon, but Amazon neglected to pick it up to series. So I guess, I guess we'll see. <laughs> what is, what are your experiences with the original zombie land? I, I remember seeing it, I think either at South by or fantastic fest, one of, one of the Austin film festivals. And I remember enjoying it, uh, when it came out, but I have not seen it in the, you know, almost decade since, uh, you, what, what is your experience? I mean, I liked it when I saw it. I, you know, I found it amusing. Um, but it's one of those movies that after I watched it, I never felt the urge to ever watch it again. Um, you know, uh, you know, the only real funny part I really remember is the Bill Murray scene, which is all anyone really seems to talk about in that movie. Um, beyond that, it just feels dated. I mean, it feels like the zombie genre as a whole has been done to death. No, no pun intended. And, to just bring it back now, it seems like that that ship has sailed. It seems like it's too late. Ben, how about you? I mean, that's like almost word for word exactly what I would have said, <laughs> uh, especially in in terms of like not even thinking about the movie at all since I saw it. Like that's the perfect explanation. It's like I'm sure it's even been on TV, you know, since then, and I've just sort of changed the channel because I I care about it that little. So this is not a movie I hold near and dear to my heart, and the sequel is just like you're telling me Emma Stone and Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson are going to come back and star in Zombieland 2 in 2019. That just seems totally nuts to me. Well, uh, Jesse Eisenberg has fallen on hard times after Batman vs Superman. And no, um, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I also don't know what the sequel is because like what, what is the appeal of a sequel that is a, a, a zombie comedy film like are people do people like these characters i don't really seem to remember much about any of the characters in that movie uh the only thing that seemed like fun for me that i can remember in my mind is like the end of the film takes place in an amusement park and they're using the amusement park rides to kind of like kill off zombies and that was kind of like a fun conceit uh, but you know, I assume that the sequel would have to take place outside of an amuse- the amusement park. You would have to, you know, adventure on further. Like, what what could possibly be in this movie to 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 make a sequel worth it? Do you guys have any ideas? Jeez, yeah, that's <laughs> what if uh, they they brought in young, sexy Alfred? I hear the kids <laughs> like that. They should add that to the film. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that's another thing. Do kids really want to watch a spy uh, show set in the '60s? I mean, uh, maybe, but I don't know. Probably, Peter. Not. Peter, if the Alfred is young enough and sexy enough, the kids will watch anything. Yeah, and also, I mean, I, I forgot to mention this, but what is the Fast and Furious Nine movie going to be called? Like, what what's the what's the possible pun in that title? Is there one? I don't think there is. Um, I saw this amazing live reading of a script called Fast Nine, and it was N E I N, uh, and it was about the the crew driving so fast that they went back in time and fought, like raced against Hitler, and it was about, uh, yeah, it was insane. The How did this get made? Podcast crew, um, Paul Shear and and uh, June Diane Raphael and and um, Jason Mantukas did a bunch of voices and stuff, and it was like it was pretty incredible. I think that script is is floating around online. If anybody wants to 
seek it out. It's it's definitely worth reading if you're a Fast and Furious fan. We will have the sh- we'll have the link that in the show notes, uh, which is a good segue to this is the end of the show. All the stories we mentioned on today's podcast you can find in the show notes and on slashfilm.com. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your questions, comments, concerns to Peter at slashfilm.com and uh, go review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.